Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Vine for February 19th, 2023. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings and from welcome, Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Hey, um, good to have you. I think there's a delay on my end on some stuff. and um, But I was, I was excited about the show tonight. We're going to have on for the first time former Missouri State Senator and Missouri political expert Jeff Smith, he's going to come on and tell us about Missouri, a state that you know, it used to be a very persuadable state and it's really kind of gotten away from Democrats recently, even though there are two metropolis areas in the city. So we're going to really get into that um, with Jeff Smith in about 20 minutes. But until then, we've got other topics to cover. And one topic we did not know we were going to talk about until yesterday, and it's very sad, um, Former President Jimmy Carter from Georgia, the longest um, post-presidency president in our nation's history. Uh, They announced – it's been announced for a while that he has brain cancer, but they announced just this past weekend that they're going to end further medical treatments for that, and he's going to enter hospice care. So, um, you know, very sad news, and we know that hospice care can mean a lot of different things in a lot of different situations. Um, Catherine, I know you heard the news about Tom Tim, and I sure did. Uh, what are your thoughts with this? You know, it, it's just it's sad um, to think that he won't be around to make the incredible, continue to make the incredible contributions that he's made to our country and really to the world. But what a life! I mean, what an incredibly inspirational life he's led um he was the first president that it was the first vote i ever made um i was away at college and i voted absentee for i still remember sitting at my kitchen table and filling out my absentee ballot and and he's always had a very special place in my heart i i admire him and um really think of him as a hero uh, like so many people, I mean, I think that especially in his, I mean, I admired him as a president, but in his post-presidency, I think he's gained a lot of respect um, beyond what he did as president. So um, it's just a little bit melancholy, but I admire him for making this choice. I think that, you know, cancer treatment can be very difficult and wears on the family and the trips to the hospital and all that stuff can be very, very difficult. So I, I admire them for, you know, being thoughtful in these, in the, as he, as his life winds down very, but it's still very sad. Yes. Um, I think talking about his life, uh, I was listening to a biography of somebody totally different this weekend, but the son of that person um, said he lived 200 years in the 80 years, or 200 years of stories and experiences in that 80 years he lived. And I thought that's, you know, apropos of maybe a lot of folks that really live a rich life, but definitely, Jimmy Carter, is it 98 or 99 that he is currently? He's 98. He's already lived. 98 and 98 years, 75 years of marriage. Um, I, I bet the I bet it's like one percent or less of the marriages in our country go to like 75 percent, and that's not a statement of marriage. That's a statement of you know just longevity. Um, just an amazing life. Uh, Tim, your thoughts? 
Well, uh, it, it, it's hard with, with all of the accolades that, that have come his way to, to really add anything to, to what's yeah. already been said publicly and what's been said here, here on the show today. But the man has lived an amazing life. He's touched most Georgians in some way. I would imagine a great, 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 great many of us have have met him or met or known a member of his family. I know all three of us fall into that category. And, uh, you know, I, I was just looking at a list of some of the things that, that he's he's done. Um, he... Uh, he, I mean, you know, going to the the Naval Academy, serving on board a submarine for seven years, uh, building that family business, uh, uh, and, and that's not even counting the political stuff that he's done. He was the 76th governor of Georgia. He was two terms in the state senate. The man has won a Nobel Peace Prize and own and own and own. Uh, and and some of the things that he did that that touch us today uh, in his term as president. Look how long the Camp David Accords have held. I remember a time when it was unthinkable that Israel and Egypt would have peace, and those things have held all of these years. Uh, the the Panama Canal Treaty, the um, the the he he created two cabinet departments the department of energy and the department of education uh the man has and what he has done since he left the presidency has just been remarkable with habitat for humanity and the lives that he's touched and uh um i i'm 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 hopeful that uh, people now uh Leave leave the president and his family alone, so that uh, you know they can they can work through this in peace, and and you know he he deserves every every bit of that. So uh, you, you know you feel sad, guys, but at the same time you got to feel happy because he would be ninety nine in October, and he has really lived a remarkable life, and and we're lucky that we have been around to witness a lot of it. That's exactly how I feel. Yeah, and, and he is entering hospice, which, like I said, that can mean a lot of things. Um, people live many times weeks or months, um, you know, in hospice, and hopefully it's the most peaceful and pleasant as it can be uh, where he can, you know, see family and friends as much as he's able to um, that last little part of his life. Um and I tell you, uh, you know, we, you talked about the post-presidency. I think that's probably going to be the biggest legacy. One is the work that he did with the Carter Center and the work that he set in motion that can be done for, you know, decades to come. But then because the, the way they – probably there's no better organization in the world spreading democracy and, and supervising elections um, – you know, than the Carter Center. That's not, I guess, the UN. But then, they're sure there were presidents after they left the White House that would do things. But he set that up, and then, you know, Reagan was a little older, so that that probably figured in. But then George H. W. Bush set up the Thousand Points Foundation, um, and and followed that model. Uh, Bill Clinton set up the Clinton Foundation, and he continues to do stuff with that. I don't really know as much about what George W. Bush and, and for that matter, even Barack Obama, but I get the sense that they've both um, done things in their post-presidency in the same way. Uh, Donald Trump, he's just missing the boat, so we'll just move on past and stay on the high road. (laughs) But uh, it's like every post-president – that um, you know, been able and all has kind of followed that model, and and I think most every president moving forward is going to follow that model, and that's going to be one of the biggest things about Jimmy Carter's legacy, Catherine. Yeah, and the thing that we haven't mentioned yet is um, the incredible work that they've done um, on health care in 
uh, particularly in third world countries, you know, the guinea worm and the uh, blind, one of the, one of the blindness um, diseases. I mean, they've really made a difference in that, in, in some of those areas too, the Carter Center. So, you know, there's, there's a lot that we have to be thankful for. And I think Tim said it so well that we should all be so grateful for, you know, being on the earth at the same time as Jimmy Carter. I'm, I'm grateful for that. And I think you're absolutely right. I think that the other post presidents have looked at the legacy and um, power of the Carter center in modeling their post presidencies. And that, is a great legacy. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you this. I think you're right about the health care initiatives, and I think that is kind of also part of his mother, Miss Lillian's legacy, what she did going to India and serving the Peace Corps. That's where he learned from that and then took that on. And so, um, you know, it just, just goes to show, you know, how people can really learn and, and extend what you have to then do. Um, Tim, uh, I, I saw something that, uh, you know, Catherine's congresswoman, Kima Williams, posted. You know, their son, her and Leslie's son, is named Carter. She mentioned how that was, it was named for Jimmy Carter. But she told a story about how he was over 90, and they went to his office, and he was had a basket of toys and, and played um, with, you know, children and, and just really was down to earth. And when we think about presidents, there's this aloofness. And I've met President Carter twice. You obviously, because of who he is and being so famous, it's there. But it's not there because of who he wants to be. Did you get that sense? Yeah, you know, the the, uh, I have a little bit different perspective because I met him before he was even governor. For the only time, I, I never saw him after that, and his his rise was was remarkable. Uh, I found him to be a, a, a you know, I, I was just a kid, but he he seemed to be a quiet and thoughtful person uh, on the day day that I met him. Uh, um, Rosalind, for instance, seemed to be much much more outgoing uh, than than he was, but he was a very uh, dignified. Uh, or seem to be type of, of fella to me, but down to earth at the same time. And I think that's because of where he was from. I mean, he was born right there. In the, he, matter of fact, his first president be born in a hospital. And it, his mother was a nurse at the hospital. <laughs> and, you know, he knew everybody in that area. He only left that area for a few years. He came back there in 1953, and except for the time that he was in government, off on government business, he lived there, you know, for the rest of his life. And uh, the, so he never, I guess he never forgot where he came from. Is that a good way to put it? Oh, definitely so. I think so. Uh, my parents and grandmother have a similar story when he ran for governor met him at a um burger king in jonesboro um uh-huh. <laughs> i met a president at a burger king this boy's president obviously but yeah that same kind of story yeah but and just once again you mentioned rosalind carter and obviously more than anyone you, you, your thoughts and prayers and good feelings go out to her because um the 70, I guess 76 years now they've been married because the 75th anniversary is at least a year ago. Mm-hmm. 76 mm-hmm. years with someone, you know, every day. And I've heard him talk about marriage in one of his books and how, you know, they never would, you know, made a commitment to never go to bed angry, um, talk it out. Um, and so think about this, just knowing, think, think about this. The first time Jimmy Carter laid eyes on Rosalind. He was three years old and she was three days old. Think about wow. that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. Yep. Yeah. Done an, done an archer because everybody thinks Plains, but apparently it's a, a, a suburb of Plains if there's such a thing it's called <laughs> Archer. <laughs> And so, well, I mean, obviously, um, 
you know, once again, it may be uh, this may be a, a something that lingers on for or, or goes goes on for a while now. We just have no ideas, but it, it's such a big story about such a um, giant and politics in Georgia and in the country. We had to discuss it. Um, we probably have a little more time before Jeff gets in on with us, and we always like to talk about um, when new candidates get in the race. We kind of got our tradition, buy, sell, hold, um, and a candidate got in the race. I believe she's actually just the – well, actually, two candidates actually got in the race. We'll see if we have time for the other. But we had planned for the one that had the bigger splash, if you will, um, Nikki Haley, former uh, governor of South Carolina, she entered the presidential race. She announced it. Then she actually had an event that actually had photos that looked like a substantial event, uh, to be honest. Um, Tim, you actually, I think, got to watch the event. It was covered on TV, which that's kind of a plus mm-hmm. in a presidential campaign that seems dominated by – um, two to three people at this point. What was your take on the rollout of, of the campaign? Well, I, I thought it was a, a pretty nice event. She she made a, a, a fairly decent talk. Uh, the room was energetic. Uh, her aides, I was impressed by the fact, and I think I mentioned this to you, that her aides figured out exactly the size crowd that they were going to have and they matched it with the right-sized venue. It was a long, narrow room. It kind of reminded me of that depot place where we went to the Wild Hog Supper that time, you know, long oh, yeah. and kind of narrow across the front of it. And it had windows to the outside, and there was a small crowd outside the windows, too, that were waving and all. So I'm going to say three, 250 to 300 people maybe uh, pressed into that room, maybe a little more, but it made the room look really full. She had a crowd of people standing behind her um, on little grandstands, and um, I, I, I I thought it was well done. I noticed, uh, and I have noticed since then, that she carefully uh, avoided mentioning the name Donald Trump. Um yeah. But but other other than yes. that, so she, it, it it went okay. Yeah, I think I saw the crowd picture. I was impressed. I, I also commented about barbecue. I said they must have had quite a um, low country barbecue uh, spread planned for all those in attendance. Um, you know, I would have shown up and listened to the speech for a good low country barbecue. Um, Catherine, I don't know if you got to see it, but I know you got, saw some of the – um, response to it. What were your thoughts on just the announcement itself? Well, you know, I, I agree with Tim that they did a good job. It, it looked good. It looked, um, you know, well prepared. They looked, you know, like they were thoughtful about how they, you know, presented her. Um, I'm not. I'm not a huge fan, but. I, I I appreciate the effort that went into pulling that off, and that she I think it was wise of her to not mention the elephant in the room. Uh, I think you know that's smart. She doesn't need to talk about him. Yeah. Well, when it's your rollout and it's your campaign video, because I saw the campaign video as well, you've got to talk about you. You've got to sell you as a product first and foremost, but before we get in the buy-sell whole part of this, and it may be on the other side of the guest here in a second, but we'll see, um, I wanted to, um, I guess I'm going to real quickly for all of us, I'm sure, sell and Coulter, Coulter uh, because what she said just right after the announcement was just so absolutely disgusting and tacky, but unfortunately – I think it's going to describe the problem that Nikki Haley's going to have in the Republican primary. She basically said, go back to where you came from. Go back to India. Now, I actually looked on Wikipedia real quickly, just curious. Um, and she was <laughs> actually from born Texas. in 1972 in Bamberg, South Carolina. 
So oh, in South Carolina, I thought she was born she's in She's a South Carolinian through and through. <clears throat> um, she was born in the United States. She is obviously had to be to be able to run for president based on the Constitution. Um, Tim, what were your thoughts on that just tasteless statement by Ann Coulter? It's Ann Coulter. I mean, when yeah, did well, she not make tasteless statements? That's, that's how she's built her entire career. It's just another thing of Ann Coulter doing that. It surprised, I don't know, absolutely no one that it be somebody like her that would do it. And I think it made a, uh, the news cycle for just a few minutes, and then most people say, well, you know what is Ann Coulter? Who cares what she thinks? And, uh, you know, maybe she'll write another book or something. Uh, that's that's about as far as I thought about it. How about you, Catherine? Well, you know, I hadn't heard anything about Ann Coulter in a long time, so she managed to, you know, up her Q score or whatever it's called just by making a statement. But, yeah, it was outrageous. It, she's just evil. Yes. Yes, and so I think we got that in, and we're going to frame that, and we come back into our buy-sell hold, we're, we're going to have to have that as part of the conversation as far as how the Republicans deal with it. But right now, we are so excited to welcome into the Kudzu Vine for the first time former Missouri State Senator, political science professor Jeff Smith. Welcome, Dr. Smith. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Good to be here. Yes. Well, I've said a few things. We're so glad to have you. Uh, give everybody a little biography of your life and politics. All right. Well, where do I start? Um, I <laughs> got involved. Uh, actually, I went to school down in North Carolina uh, in Chapel Hill, and that was my first political involvement down there. I was working for a guy named Harvey Gantt, who ran for U.S. Senate against Jesse Helms, in 1990 and 96, uh, the latter of which I helped out on, and uh, that kind of whet my appetite for, you know, for politics and policy. Came back to St. Louis, worked in our city's public schools, um, and uh, ended up um, going uh, back to uh, get a graduate degree, get a doctorate in political science. In the middle of that, I took a year off and worked for Bill Bradley when he ran for president in 2000. Uh, then, yeah, that was a that was a, a tough one because he was a wonderful guy, would have been a great president. Um, you know, I think would have won that race, but uh, not that Al Gore didn't win the race. But anyway, um, then ended up running for U.S. House when I was 29 in an open seat primary to succeed Dick Gephardt. Uh, in St. Louis and lost narrowly by one percentage point uh, in a primary to a guy named Russ Carnahan, whose father had been our governor, uh, who tragically died in a plane crash, and whose mother uh, served in the U.S. Senate. So lost that race by a point, went and taught at Dartmouth College uh, after that, and then came back to St. Louis and ran for the state Senate and won and uh, served there. And um, yeah, that's, that was the extent of my elective career. I can uh, go into more details, but that's probably uh, enough to, to tide people over for now. Sounds like you, you've had an a extensive career in, in politics, uh, plenty enough. Um, well, so you're, you're a native uh, Missouri resident. Uh, sounds like your age is very close to mine. I was in college when Harvey Gant, Grant ran for, pres, uh, ran for uh, Senate in North Carolina. Um, so I'm going to start right there. You know, when you were growing up and then when you started your political career, all the way probably to about 2010, Missouri was a very competitive state. Democrats could win in Missouri. Um, so in the last cycle or two, we'll call it the Josh Hawley years, What's happened? Yeah, so I think it's actually a pretty um, – it's kind of a longer story than, than the last couple of cycles. It's really a story that goes back about 25 years, um, maybe 30 years. And, and uh, starting back in the 20th century, Missouri was the best, most accurate bellwether for the whole country. 
how Missouri went almost always was how the nation went in presidential elections. There was only one election in the whole century, uh, 1956, where Missouri's victor did not win the presidency. So Missouri was, you know, a reliable predictor of, of, of uh, what the country was going to do. That all started to change in 2000. In 2000, you saw George W. Bush, um, uh, well, you know, he, he won, uh, obviously, the presidency, didn't win the popular vote, but he won Missouri by much more than he won the presidency. He lost the national popular vote, obviously. In 2004, you saw that continue to diverge. In 2008, Obama narrowly lost Missouri while winning nationally by, I think, eight points or so. And then in 2012, uh, uh, in 2016, just an increasing divergence from the national ticket to the point where in, in 2016, despite Hillary Clinton winning the national popular vote by, uh, what, three points, uh, I think, two and a half or three points, Donald Trump won Missouri by 19 points and nearly repeated that in, nearly repeated that in 2020. So you've seen a huge divergence. Why has that happened? I would argue that state legislative term limits have played a big role. For a long time, uh, throughout the 80s and 90s, when the National Democratic Party got more liberal and, uh, and it was tough in southern states um, and kind of border states for Democrats uh, to survive, but they could survive by being kind of old school, local, you know, centrist uh, you know, maybe center-right Democrats who were pro-labor but pro-life uh, and often pro-gun, that was a big chunk of our Democrats in southeast and northeast and northwest Missouri survived. And then when term limits hit in the 1990s, uh, they were passed in 91, I believe, um, and then you only had eight more years. And so in 2000, all those old school yellow dog Democrats from rural Missouri got put out of office and the new generation of Democrats mostly could not win uh, in a more social issue um, dominant, uh, dominated environment. Republicans had a House speaker, uh, a, a young guy who was, got elected in 2000, became speaker in 2004. And he really drove the kind of God, guns, and gays narrative for Republicans. That made it uh, put rural Democrats on the defensive, and it cost us the state House, the state Senate, and now we're in the Democrats are in the super minority in both chambers. Well, that, that actually makes a lot of sense. Well, I, I want to go now into kind of like maybe the road back, but – I want to talk about your two largest cities and then everything else. Because, you know, some yeah. of the states that have moved very Republican are very rural states. They don't have a big city. You've got St. Louis and Kansas City. And then I have been through your state. I've been between the two cities, and there is a very lot of rural area. And then I've been north of some Kansas City and went through that rural area. So I know kind of a bit of the lay of the land, and outside of that, it's different. But I did even hear, like in Kansas, one reason Kansas can actually elect Democrats at times is because of Metro Kansas City. So Kansas Kansas can do more with Kansas City resident Metro residents than Missouri does at this point. What does the road back for Democrats look like? Does it involve those two cities, or is it more yep. in that rural area? Well, it's interesting because in your question, you – you already know the answer better than 99.9% of people who ask me this question. Um, and, and the root of Missouri's problem is that the, high educa the highly educated suburbs of Kansas City are not in Missouri. The, you know, some of the kind of mid-SES and lower-SES uh, ring areas of Kansas City are in Missouri, but the more affluent ones that have been trending blue over the last 10 to 15 years are like Overland Park, Kansas, Shawnee Mission, Kansas, John, that Johnson County uh, area that has elected uh, um, uh, Sharice Davids, sorry, uh, Sharice Davids to the U.S. House. And so that hurts Missouri uh, in terms of being able to you know, be competitive again because the – 
most blue trending suburbs of Kansas City are in Kansas and not Missouri. The road back in Missouri is going to have to go through three places. The first are the suburb, the kind of West County suburbs of St. Louis, which have been trending blue, especially, you know, in the Trump era. Uh, we saw we would have taken back a congressional seat in suburban St. Louis, but Republicans in redistricting uh, strengthened it about eight or nine points for Republicans. And so it was the closest congressional seat in the country in 2020 uh, for Ann Wagner. It was decided by 115 votes in the presidential election, but Wagner got it redistricted favorably for her. And so she uh, is now comfortable again um, in a district that's not close because the seat pushed further into the exurbs. So uh, the route back is West St. Louis County, the growth around the University of Missouri in Boone County, which is right in the middle of the state, and then the northern, um, in maybe four places, the northern suburbs of Kansas City, Clay County is kind of a blue trending area, and then Springfield in the southwest. Uh, which has trended blue um, a little more slowly, but is growing, is one of the only kind of like, you know, big cities. St. Louis is a big city, but it's been shrinking. Uh, Kansas City is doing all right, but there's, there's some good urban growth around Springfield. So those are the four places in the state that we need to build out from, because in most of rural Missouri, Democrats have been pretty decimated, even in the ancestrally Democratic uh, counties. Yes. Now I want to ask you um, one more question that relates to policy and how a lot of voters in, in places like Missouri still like Democratic policies. A few years ago, y'all put a ballot referendum on the ballot to expand access to, to Medicare, Medicaid, um, using you know the levers of Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. It passed, but then the legislature, from my understanding, just cut that off at the knees and didn't allow that to happen. Well, one, your voters said, hey, expand health care through government intervention. And then so that's palatable. But then second, I want to know if there was much backlash that the Republicans in the legislature didn't allow the will of the people to happen. So the phenomenon that you just described, it hasn't just been limited to uh, Medicaid expansion. We've had something similar on four or five issues over the last seven or eight years. We had it on right to work. Republicans passed right to work, and then uh, Democrats went to the ballot to try to overturn that and won 60-40. Democrats did an initiative petition on medical marijuana, passed that, and then this year expanded that to recreational. Um, and Democrats raised the minimum wage. You know, this was... Uh, around a decade ago, but, you know, raised the minimum wage substantially uh, at, um, through the in initiative petition process. So consistently, when voters get a chance at the ballot to vote on progressive issues without the Democratic label or brand attached to it, those issues win, four or five big ones in the last decade. Um, I think there's a it's actually a little bit counterintuitive, but that may be hurting Democrats at the ballot box. And here's why. A lot of voters, I think, think to themselves, well, I can get some of these things that I want done, like a higher minimum wage or support for union organizing or, you know, health care expanded. I can get those taken care of through initiative petitions, and then I can vote to keep my guns by voting for Republicans, right? So it helps them kind of balance it. By no means do I want to get rid of the IP process, and in fact, I'm working in Jefferson City every week to try to, you know, protect it as, as Republicans are going after that IP process. But I will say one explanation that strikes me as, as rather plausible for continued Republican dominance, especially in rural Missouri, is that folks who are kind of swing voters could go either way, can get some of those issues passed that they want you know, through these uh, ballot initiatives. So um, does that answer your question at all? That does. That's a very intriguing possibility. Um, you know, it just seems like voters would, would be ticked off 
that they, you know, use direct democracy and then it's thwarted um, the will of the people. But uh, but I, th- I think I know kind of what your rationale is. Um, well, I'm going to and and and, then, and let me just clarify. Him. Go ahead. I just want to clarify on, on Medicaid expansion. Even though the, Republic, the legislature did try to stop that, it did ultimately, through a court case, it did get expanded. And so maybe that pent-up anger that you, you know, kind of anticipated uh, against Republicans for, for trying to stifle the people's will, maybe it didn't really manifest itself because the courts overturned the, you know, the Republicans' attempt to disallow uh, the, the legislature's attempt to disallow the expansion that people voted for. So it did end up getting expanded. People, I think, are pretty happy about that. But that's probably why you don't see that big backlash that, uh, that you might have otherwise seen. Yes. Well, um, I'm going to pass this on to Catherine and Tim, who have other questions. I know uh, Catherine's going to ask you about what your working on right now, in fact, and Tim has other questions as well. Catherine? Hey, excuse me. Thanks so much for being on with us tonight. It's great to hear about what's happening in Missouri. I wanted to ask you about this initiative that you're working on that I now can't remember the name of. So Uh, so I'm doing a bunch of things now, um, which we'd be happy to talk to you about. Uh, One of them, my main uh, my main job is that I run the Missouri Workforce Housing Association, yep. and that's an, that's, that's it. an umbrella. It's an umbrella group comprised of about 180 different organizations around Missouri that all want to see safe, decent, quality, affordable housing get built or rehabbed and and preserved. And so there's a state program uh, in Georgia and Missouri have two of the largest state low income housing tax credit programs, which facilitates, uh, you know, new construction and rehabilitation of, of uh, quality affordable housing. So I work in, in the state capital to try to keep that program strong after our former governor, Eric Greitens, he had eliminated it. Um, And uh, thankfully he's no longer around Uh, now. He's, um, I don't know what he's going to do next. Uh, you might, might have seen that he lost, tried to come back to you know, uh, run in that U.S. Senate uh, race last cycle, but he lost in the primary, thankfully. Um, so he had eliminated the state low-income housing program. We were able to resurrect it uh, a couple of years ago, so I spent a lot of time focused on that. And then I do a lot of work on criminal justice reform as well. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, I wanted to ask you about where those uh, two issues intersect. Um, I know yeah. that I, I've never lived in public housing, but I've heard about that there's a lot of rules around who can live there and how, um, you know, like that uh, felons can't live in um, housing that's in what we have traditionally called public housing. And I always thought that was, well, I have a lot of opinions about the way we treat people after they've um, been released from prison and jail, but we could, that's a whole other discussion. But um, I, I was just wondering if you've managed to figure out a way to provide housing for people that have been locked out of it in the past. It's a great question, um, and it's something that I've worked on uh, quite a bit over the last several years, and I'm going to be working on more. Um, so I, I uh, in my uh, kind of one of my side roles, I help lead the St. Louis region's second chance employment initiative. So we've recruited about 150 companies to hire people who have come out of uh, prison or jail in Missouri. And we put them, uh, we, it's a long story, but we uh, make videos of all of them. They get four or five minutes to explain their uh, work history, their dreams and their vision professionally, talk about, you know, the mistake they've made and take responsibility for it, but then describe how overcoming those mistakes and that adversity in life has made them stronger and a better employee. So we then match them with employers in the fields that they're interested in working in and have gotten uh, several hundred people placed over the last couple of years uh, as, really you know, with 
Yeah, so I work a lot on that. But one of the issues that often comes up with folks that's a barrier to successful uh, retention, you know, in, in a job is, you know, unstable housing. And so given my other role, my main job, uh, running the state <laughs> low-income housing trade association, I have strong relationships with my members who own affordable housing properties and have been able to use those relationships to get a lot of those property management organizations and property owners to loosen up and make exceptions for folks uh, that have felony convictions but are enrolled in a workforce development program uh, such as the one that I that I help lead. So fortunately, you know, I've been really blessed uh, to come out of my own experience um, of, of incarceration uh, a little over a decade ago and be able to continue working on the policy issues that got me interested in public life in the first place, uh, most notably uh, affordable housing and, and criminal justice reform and education policy, all things that I work on now. And I am doing lots of work uh, with property, uh, organiza property management organizations all across the state to encourage them to change policies to lease the people uh, that, that have felony convictions and to help people um, then keep record of successful rent paying, which will then help them be able to preserve mobility in the future. Because it's not just about me making a phone call and getting someone an apartment. It's about them having the freedom to be able to move where they want to move despite a mistake they may have made, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago. Well, I just also have to say that those are um, it's a it's great to have someone working on those three issues <clears throat> together because they're all so interconnected education absolutely criminal justice and housing and I think you know we uh, those of us who don't experience it every day don't realize how much of a burden housing can be especially in uh in like like in atlanta in a in a metro area where prices can be ridiculous and then so you end up <clears throat> living further away and then you have transportation and job you know it's like this terrible convergence of um of bad mojo sometimes and so i'm really happy to hear that you're working on all three of those things together i'm sure that the people of Missouri should they should be very grateful for that because it's a I'm sure it's a lot of work and can sometimes be very heartbreaking. <laughs> so I think it definitely and it's, it, it it can definitely there's definitely model. good days and bad days. Yeah, thank you. I well, appreciate that. Uh, um, you know, I work for Planned Parenthood, so trust me, I know about good days and bad days. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna pass it to Tim for some more questions. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Sure, Catherine. Yeah, good evening, Dr. Smith. Thank you for being with us. Um, the U.S. Senate map looks a bit rough for Democrats next year, and that's putting it mildly. I think Republicans are only defending 11 seats. One of them happens to be in your state. I know this is more wishing than, than anything, but is there any way that Josh Hawley uh, can be vulnerable in the 2024 election. So you're right. It's going to be a tough cycle for Democrats. we got tough defenses in Montana and Ohio and West mm -hmm. Virginia and not a lot of great opportunities uh, when, when you look around the, the country. Um, I think the one thing that you can say for sure is that there's going to be a lot of low dollar, you know, kind of grassroots money from around the country that comes in against Holly. So the Democratic nominee, probably a Marine named Lucas Kuntz, uh, you know, young, smart, handsome guy who's, who's you know, um, I think, you know, matches up fairly well against Holly. Uh, and he's built a, a strong kind of grassroots donor base last cycle. Uh, when he ran, he he narrowly lost the primary to replace Roy Blunt last cycle um, to an Anheuser Busch heiress that kind of got in the race late and spent 15 million bucks in the last few months and and edged him out. But uh, he's you know I think going to be our candidate. 
does he have a chance? I mean, you know, I wouldn't bet my house on him, uh, <laughs> but he's probably got a, you know, five, five or 10% shot of winning. Um, it's, it's, uh, uh, I'll just say this. Josh Hawley has probably got some things that, that are still uh, not known by the public that may emerge uh, over the next year or two, and we'll see. The New York Times did a profile where they kind of referenced obliquely, you know, a couple of those things. They talked about some posters that he had in his college dorm room above his bed that I think are a little bizarre in uh, kind of, you know, very, again, implicitly, you know, alluded to some things. You know, he's obsessed with people watching pornography, and he talks about that constantly. And so, you know, he's – Holly is a, is a kind of a bizarre guy. He's kind of creepy. There's the January 6th stuff, which everybody knows about, but that's not probably what's going to beat him in Missouri, a state that Trump won by 19 and 16 points. Uh, what could beat him in Missouri is if other things emerge that show him to be a hypocrite, especially with regard to his obsession with everyone else's personal, private lives and what other people do in their bedroom. So we'll see what emerges. Uh, that would probably be the one thing that could bring him down. Hmm. Now, you, you know, of course, uh, big election. And, and look, and look. Let, let me just say a ca- caveat is, I don't really give a shit what people do in their personal life, and I think mm-hmm. probably most of us don't. But it's more the potential hypocrisy, since Holly ha- has shown, you know, publicly to be so obsessed with with everyone else's, you know, virtue and, and morality that it could end up boomeranging back on him. If, you know, if it happens that he's not quite as virtuous as his sanctimony would, uh, would suggest. I apologize for interrupting you. Yeah. And, and we would not be surprised if, if that indeed is the case with, with Senator Holly either. Um, we have had a problem in Georgia developing a bench to seat statewide office, congressional office and such, because the Republican Party has basically dominated until very recently at the statewide level this state Mm -hmm. since, oh, like the 2004 election. Now, you made allusion to the fact that the problems with the Democratic Party go back a long way, uh, a similar amount of time. Do the Democrats in Missouri have a similar problem that they suddenly look around and there's just no bench? Yeah, I mean, we definitely do. Um, I think you guys probably have a better bench than us. Um, Mm -hmm. But, I mean, on, on the other hand, like nobody, you know, five years ago, people weren't probably weren't thinking that, you know, uh, Reverend Warnock and, and John Ossoff were guys who were going to be U.S. senators in the next few years. So, you, so, you know, people mm-hmm. can always come out of nowhere. It helps you guys that the demographic trends are in Democrats' favor with the, right. the burgeoning growth of the Atlanta, you know, suburbs. So that's a very mm-hmm. good thing as, as the Atlanta metro becomes a larger and larger percentage of the state's voters. We don't have a similar uh, tailwind behind Democrats in Missouri. So, yeah, we have a big problem. We have a weak bench. There's one guy who's running for the state Senate who's fantastic named Stephen Weber. He was a Marine. He's an attorney. Uh, he's um, involved in, in the labor movement now. Um, he's, you know, he's West Virginia born, and he's kind of got that just uncanny ability to, to connect with, you know, uh, with a lot of voters who the Democrats don't do too well with anymore. So he's somebody who I think is a, a great figure on Democrats' bench. But, yeah, we got the same problem as, as y'all do. And when we've run dynasty candidates in the same way that you guys ran uh, Jimmy Carter, um, uh, his his grandson, I guess, Jack, like a couple cycles ago. Was that 2014? Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, we ran mm-hmm. Russ Carnahan, whose parents, you know, had been, you know, uh, very prominent in Missouri politics. He had been a congressman after he defeated me uh, and others in a primary. And then we ran him for lieutenant governor and he got trounced uh, in 2016. So even when we've run some brand names like Russ and his sister, Robin Carnahan, uh, it, it hasn't worked very well. So we need a new formula. We got to get a couple of these state senators uh, that are very talented out around the state, meeting more people, raising more money and, and getting more visibility in the media. And, you know, there's a couple who are who are possible. But, yeah, we got the same challenges that Georgia Democrats do in that regard. Right. Thank you for that, doctor. Is, and with that, is, I'm is Abrams going to come back? Ah, uh, that's iffy. That that that's iffy. That's the big uh, question. That is a huge question <laughs> for us here, uh, and and I I'm sorry to say I, I I don't have any inkling of an answer for you on that one. And with that, I'm going to pass it back to David. David. Yes. Well, uh, Doctor Smith, we have thoroughly enjoyed this information about Missouri, and um, as that, you know, Senate race evolves and hopefully some some interesting things begin to happen, you might be willing to come on the show again and, and talk about it. Um, some things I didn't even get to ask about tonight I'd still like to ask about. But when we leave, when you leave us, we want to let you um, have a chance to tell if uh, folks are interested in your organization, how they can, like, find out more about it on the Internet. And then also, if you have some social media handles so people can um, read some of your thoughts on Missouri politics and other politics. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, so if you're interested in, um, in the housing work that I do, the affordable housing work I do, uh, and I'm actually going to be coming to Georgia next month um, to your affordable housing conference, uh, which is in Savannah next month, because Georgia does a, a real good job with this. Um, uh, so if you're interested in that, you can go to www.moworkforcehousing.com. If you're interested in the second chance employment work that, that I do, um, which is really innovative, we're actually going into state prisons and, and county jails and doing videotapes of people in their last 90 days of incarceration getting those videos into reels that company, uh, that corporate HR managers watch, and then phone interviews uh, while people are still incarcerated so they can walk right out of prison into a job and not have that horrible first month or two or three where they can't find work, they don't have stable housing, they may have substance use challenges lingering from before they were locked up, and, and that's when a lot of people overdose and, and, and really struggle. We're trying to get rid of that and help people walk right into employment. If that interests you, feel free to go to slu.edu slash second chance. That's St. Louis University, slu.edu slash second chance. And you can volunteer, even from Georgia, wherever you're from, you can help people and be, by being a volunteer job coach, helping them online, put together a resume, uh, prepare for a job interview, um, and do all sorts of things as they onboard. Uh, so this, it can be done remotely. If you're interested in just following my ridiculous uh, Twitter feed, that's at Jeff Smith Mo, Jeff Smith M-O, and, uh, and I'll put up links. I write columns once a month on Missouri politics. So if that interests you, um, I will be posting one of those soon. Thanks again for having me. I really appreciate the chance to visit. Thank you very yes, much. Yes, very interesting Thank you, Doctor. And keep up the good work. Yeah. Hey, I appreciate that. Yes. Okay. Thank you, sir. Take care. Have a great week. You too. You too. Uh, that was Jeff Smith, uh, his work with – um, housing and then um, helping folks reenter the society after prison sounds great. Obviously, you know, his background and uh, knowledge being a college professor of political science, you could tell with his – and an elected official, his knowledge of Missouri politics was excellent. Um, we've got just a few more minutes, which is just about perfect because we set up Nikki Haley's campaign. Now it's time to buy, sell, hold on this thing. Um 
Tim, do you want to go first on buy, sell, hold on Nikki Haley's campaign? And I think in many ways the primary is the the majority of this ball game. Yeah, it's, it's the whole ball game I think for her. And at this moment, I'm going to sell. She's at four percent in the national polls. Uh, I don't often pay attention to that, but I'm going to this time. She's also at 16% per the poll that you sent me this sent us this week in her home state. She has so far, as I mentioned, not taken on the elephant in the room, Trump, and she's shown, shown no inclination to do so, and she's going to have to do it. Otherwise, what's her angle? What's her lane to get votes from? Certainly not the Trump lane, and I don't think there's enough votes there otherwise. I'm selling. Yes. Um, Catherine, buy, sell, hold. I'm selling, too. She she can't win the primary. She can't get the, the Republican base to vote for her. She can't get – I don't know that she can appeal to the moderates, enough for them to come out and vote for her. And I think she's a little bit mealy-mouthed and not very uh, compelling. She doesn't have, I mean, she does have a pretty good backstory, but she doesn't deliver it very well. So I'm going to, I say so. Yes. I'm going to make it three for three. I'm going to sell. And I'll tell you, her campaign video, when she talked about, you know, being the parent of, Indian immigrants, and then she, of course, said it didn't matter who you were, and, and I get where she's trying to come at that, but it was kind of like the, the challenge she has is she has to have like this, hey, Republicans, we need to show uh, independents and Democrats that we're different. We're not who they think we are. Well, there's a whole bunch of people in the Republican base that like who we think they are. They are who we think they are. And so, therefore, she's got to get the Republican primary electorate to admit they were wrong. They were just not at the point they're going to do that. I don't know what point that is it's going to be. It ain't going to be in 2024, and it ain't going to be with Nikki Haley. Another issue she has, and, and um, Logan Phillips actually wrote a column on this. You know, He was with us last week. Um, Tim Scott's right, just about to announce, and so – you have a bunch of people in her home state that, unless they're just hardcore in Nikki Haley, they may be like, well, we love somebody from South Carolina, but we've got to wait for Senator Tim. We've got to wait to see what Senator Scott does. And then if he get, they both get in, how do we pick? I don't think Lindsey Graham has weighed in on this, and I think there's a decent chance if Tim Scott gets in, he doesn't endorse Tim Scott, Nikki Haley's in. He doesn't endorse Nikki Haley. He sticks with Trump, and that would be the the third politician um, right there. And if I'm not mistaken, didn't Henry McMaster already endorse Donald Trump? Do the one of y'all know? I think so. I don't know. I think, I think he, he did. did. And then yeah. that's the person yeah. that was her predecessor. I'm sorry, her her, her um the person that you know assumed her office of governor. She's not even getting traction in her own state. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's going to be a lot of candidates like this that say this is the Republican autopsy from 2012 all over again. We're on the wrong track. we got to take a different track. But there's a lot of folks that just don't want that track in the Republican Party. In 2016, right, exactly. they won, and so they go, well, we can catch lightning in the bottle again. And they might to the detriment of America – but there's a good chance they won't, and so how many times do they have to lose till they finally want to own up and do the real work of becoming a 21st century party for an America that looks different than the 1950s? That's going to be the whole game. Um, yeah. And so we shall see. Any more thoughts on uh, Nikki Haley's campaign? Because I'm not so sure we're going to be discussing it a whole lot moving forward. <laughs> I got nothing more you know, to say I, I do have one more thing to say And, and you sent us an article That spelled it out I mean the, the, the Republican Party Still dominated by People who love Donald Trump 
and and they're either going to be for Donald Trump or DeSantis. That's who's going to buy for the Trump voters. That's two-thirds of the party. Nikki Haley and the other candidates are going to be going after the little one-third or less that's, that's anti-Trump. There ain't enough votes there. There, there. I don't see a way she gets Donald Trump's voters. Right. Not with Donald Trump around. No. It's it's just a tough road to sled. I mean, maybe there's some other goal she has there for for running. I mean, maybe there's something else. I don't know what it is. Um, but, you know, maybe time will tell. Uh, well, uh, well, again, we want to thank Jeff Smith for coming on and giving us all that great information. We've already got our guests lined up for next week um, from the Atlanta Objective. He has a TV show. He's a blog. He writes everywhere uh, covering Georgia and Atlanta politics. George Sheedy. Uh, George is going to join us on the show next week. So until then, it's because we've Good night, Good night y'all. guys. Good night, buddy. We are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world. America has created the longest peacetime economic experience. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.